Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words we read there in Genesis 37. Genesis 37, verses 1 to 4. We read, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. That Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to, of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series called Dreams and Deliverance as we look at the well-known story of Joseph in Genesis 37 down to 50. Now although Andrew Lloyd Webber called his musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, we'll see that Joseph's coat only really appears in one chapter of his story. Instead the focus of Joseph's story like every other Old Testament story is on Joseph's God. And this morning we're going to look at Joseph's dysfunctional family under three headings. The dreams, then the decision, and finally the deception. First the dreams. Look at verses 1 to 11. Here the author focuses on the dreams of Joseph. We can start by looking at the dysfunction in verses 1 to 4. The scene is set for us in verses 1 and 2. We're told that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. He has been reconciled with his brother Esau back in chapter 33, and he now settles in the land that the Lord had promised to give to his father, his grandfather Abraham, and to his descendants. We're also told that we are dealing here with the generations of Jacob. Genesis 37 to 50 is a new narrative unit in the book of Genesis. We find ourselves moving from the life of Jacob to the lives of his sons, his generations, especially Joseph and Judah. We're introduced to Joseph in verse 2. He's 17 years old. He was pasturing his father's flock. And he brought a bad report about his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, to his father. We're then introduced to Jacob, or Israel, in verse 3. He is described as loving Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Jacob had married two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Bad idea. He loved Rachel more than Leah. Even worse idea. He had then had sons by Leah and her servant Zilpah, as well as Rachel's servant Bilhah, but Rachel had been unable to bear him any children. When she eventually conceived and gave birth to Joseph, Jacob loved, he favoured Joseph more than any of his other sons, even worse, idea. And in order to display that love, Jacob made Joseph a robe of many colours. This was a, a special robe designed to communicate a father's special love for his special son. It could even indicate that Jacob had chosen Joseph to be his heir and successor. Then we're introduced to the brothers in verse 4. They saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them. It was impossible not to notice this as Joseph pranced and paraded around in his robe of many colours. And when they saw this, they hated Joseph and found themselves unable to speak peacefully to him. They literally couldn't speak a word of peace to him. They couldn't say shalom to him. They couldn't say hello to him. They didn't have anything good to say to him or about him. 
There is a dysfunction. And we can move, though, from the dysfunction to the dreams in verses 5 to 11. We can note the first dream, verses 5 to 8. We read that Joseph had a dream. Now, in the ancient Near East, a dream was seen as a means of divine communication. As Joseph receives this dream, he is aware that God is somehow speaking to him. And Joseph feels the need to relay this, in, this revelation to his brothers. He tells them that he had dreamt that they were binding their sheaves in the field, and his sheaves suddenly arose and stood upright. Meanwhile, his brother's sheaves gathered round his sheaf and bowed down to it. The meaning of the dream isn't lost on the brothers, and they proceed to ask Joseph if he really thinks, if he really believes, that he is going to rule over them, reign over them, like his sheaf ruled over, reigned over their sheaves. The result of the dream is that Joseph's brothers hate him even more, not only because he has received this dream, but also because he has relayed it to them. The second dream is then given in verses 9 to 11. We read that Joseph dreamed another dream, and once again he relays that dream to his brothers, and he tells them that he had dreamt that the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars had all bowed down to him. And this time even Jacob has had enough, and he rebukes Joseph. Because Joseph is now saying, he is now indicating that not only will his brothers bow down to him, but the whole family, including his mother and his father, will also bow to him. And that is too much for Jacob. Jacob has already had to bow to his brother Esau. He is not going to bow to his son, his youngest son, Joseph. The result of the dream is that Joseph's brothers are then jealous of him. But despite rebuking his son, Jacob also keeps, he guards what Joseph has been saying in his mind, in his heart. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the work of God. The work of God. That's what we see in Genesis 37. There is no mention of the Lord in this whole chapter. But the dreams that Joseph receives indicate that the Lord is sovereign and he is speaking The dreams indicate that the Lord is ruling, the Lord is reigning over everything going on in this chapter and all the chapters that follow. And that is important for us to remember today. The testimony of Scripture is that the Lord is always working. And he is working in seen and unseen ways. He is working in our times of comfort and our times of confusion. He is working in our times of pleasure and in our times of pain. John Piper writes, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of only three of them. Don't you love that? God is always working in 10,000 ways in your life. And you may be aware of only three of them. So this morning I want to start this new sermon series by reminding each of us that the Lord is working. And he's working even in the times and even in the seasons when he appears to be most distant, most silent, most absent. The Lord doesn't go missing in action. The Lord doesn't go absent without leave. He is working. And he is working in your life today, friend, whether you see it or not. So there's the dreams. And then second, we have the decision. Look at verses 12 to 28. Where the author now focuses on the decision of Joseph's brothers. Verses 12 to 17, we see the pursuit. 
We can start by noting where Joseph was sent in verses 12 to 14. His brothers have gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Now Shechem is an infamous place. Shechem is the place where Jacob's daughter Tamar, uh, Dinah, sorry, had been raped by a group of men. And the brothers of Joseph, Jacob's sons, had murdered a number of the Shechemite men in retaliation. Jacob is obviously very concerned about the brothers' welfare as they return to Shechem, the scene of these two crimes. And so he sends Joseph to go to them. He seems to be completely oblivious to the hatred, the hostility of Joseph's brothers toward him. And Joseph replies with the words, here I am. Again, Joseph seems to be completely oblivious to the hatred, the hostility of his brothers toward him. And Jacob then sends Joseph to see that all is well with his brothers and to bring word back to him. He is saying to Joseph, I want you to bring me back another report. You remember how Joseph had brought a report back about the the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah? Well, now Jacob is saying, Joseph, you did a good job once before. I want you to bring me back another report. And Joseph makes the journey from the valley of Hebron to Shechem about 50 miles. We can then note the search of Joseph. Verses 15 to 17, a man, we don't know who this man was, finds Joseph wandering in the fields and he asks him what he's seeking. Joseph tells him that he is looking for his brothers and he asks the man to tell him where they might be. The man replies that he had heard the brothers saying that they were going to Dothan, a journey of about 13 miles. And with that information ringing in his ears, Joseph makes the journey to Dothan. You can see, can't you, that Joseph is getting further and further away from the safety of his home, from the security of his father. He has gone 50 miles from Hebron to Shechem and an additional 13 miles from Shechem to Dothan. We can move from the pursuit to the plan in verses 18 to 24. We see the initial plan in verses 18 to 20. The brothers see their brother in his robe of many colours from afar. It's impossible to miss. There he is, shining in all these colourful clothes. And as they see him, they sarcastically shout, Here comes this dreamer. Literally, here comes the master or lord of the dreams. Now, having said this, they resolve to kill Joseph, throw him into a pit... And then say that a wild animal had devoured him. And as they concoct this vicious and violent plan, they mutter and we will see what will become of his dreams. We then see the plan being revised in verses 21 to 24. Before it can be implemented, Reuben, the eldest of the brothers, intervenes and he says, let us not take his life. And he goes on to suggest that they throw Joseph into a pit and they just leave him there to die. And the reason he says this is because he intends to rescue Joseph and restore him to his father. If you go back a few chapters, you find that Reuben had fallen out with his father because he had slept with his father's concubine, his stepmother's servant, Bilhah. This is a really dysfunctional family. You think your family is dysfunctional? Joseph's family is extremely dysfunctional. Evidently, Reuben then thinks that if he rescues Joseph, restores him to his father, then Jacob might well return him to favour and good grace. The brothers agree and they strip Joseph of his robe of many colours. They throw him into a pit and the pit happens to be dry and empty. 
with a move from the plan to the purchase in verses 25 to 28. The brothers' plan is revised further in verses 25 to 27. Having thrown Joseph into the pit, the brothers sit down to have some lunch. You can see that their consciences aren't bothering them. In a few chapters' time, we'll read that they they even heard Joseph shouting and screaming to them from the pit. But they just say, let's have some lunch. And as they eat, they see a caravan of Ishmaelite traders who are travelling from Gilead to Egypt with balm and gum and myrrh. And upon seeing this, Reuben's brother, Joseph's brother, Judah, has a brainwave. And he suggests that they sell Joseph to these men. That will mean that they will be rid of Joseph once and for all. Not only will they be rid of Joseph once and for all, but they won't even need to get their hands dirty. And Judah says, and he is our flesh and blood after all. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? That that he can say, well, it's a really bad thing, guys, if we kill Joseph because he is our flesh and blood. but, But it's okay to sell him. It's okay. And Judah makes the point that they will even make a profit. They will benefit from the sale of Joseph. So get rid of Joseph and make a profit. And the plan is implemented. Verses 27 and 28. The brothers listen to Judah. They agree with what he's saying. And as the traders pass by the brothers, the brothers draw Joseph up out of the pit. They lift him out of the pit. And they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which was the going rate for a male slave. And with that, Joseph now finds himself being taken down to Egypt, getting further and further away from his father, further and further from his home. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the escalation of sin. The escalation of sin. That's what we see in Genesis 37. In verses 1 to 11, we saw the root of sin. As the brothers felt this hatred, this ever-increasing hostility toward their favoured brother. But now in verses 12 to 28, we see that the root of sin gives way to the fruit of sin. As the brothers move from simply hating their brother to planning his death and eventually selling him off as a slave in Egypt. The sin within their hearts has escalated to concrete and irreversible actions. And that's important for us to remember. My grandparents, you may not believe this of the fairier grandparents, but my grandparents used to love watching the Laurel and Hardy films. Some of you are smirking because it seems impossible to imagine that a a free church minister from 60 years ago would love the Laurel and Hardy films. But they loved the Laurel and Hardy films. And what will often happen in these old slapstick comedies is that the two characters will be presented with a situation. And whatever the situation, they simply make the situation worse and worse. It's this escalation of chaos. They might just need to fix a minor door, a minor window, and they end up just tearing the whole house down. That's what happens. And Oliver Hardy will be left saying to his friend Stan Laurel, well, that's another fine mess you've gotten us into. And it's the same with sin. Sin tends to grow. Sin tends to escalate. Sin tends to snowball in our lives until we find ourselves in a fine mess. John T. Rhodes writes, The devil doesn't need to take you a mile all at once. He just needs to move you an inch. And once we have made peace in our hearts with disobedience to Christ... 
Once we let that sin fester and grow, that's all it is going to take is an opportunity for that sin to give birth and for tragedy to strike. All it takes is an inch. Well, this morning I want to ask, friends, is there some sin that you've been allowing to fester away in your life? Maybe nobody else knows about it. But you know. And you know that it's inching you further and further away from Jesus. And not only is it inching you further and further away from Jesus, but it's inching you closer and closer to tragedy. My friend, if this word isn't convicting you today, if this word is challenging you today, then please take the opportunity to deal with whatever sin it is before it's too late and you find yourself engaged in some irreversible action. Whatever it is that might be inching you further and further from Jesus and closer and closer to tragedy, deal with it. Cut out the root of sin before the the fruit of sin starts to flourish. Then third and finally, we have the deception. The deception. Look at verses 29 to 36, where the author now focuses on the deception of Joseph's father. Verses 29 to 32, we see the pretense of the brothers. We see the alarm of Reuben in verses 29 to 30. It seems that Reuben wasn't present when Judah suggested that they sell Joseph. And he now returns to the pit and he discovers that it's empty. There is no sign of Joseph and Reuben assumes the worst and he tears his clothes before going to his brothers saying to them, the boy is gone and I, I, where shall I go? We then see the action of the brothers in verses 31 and 32. The brothers take Joseph's robe of many colors and they dip it in the blood of a freshly slaughtered goat. And after doing this, they send the robe to their father with the instruction that he examine it, that he carefully identify it to see if it's his son's robe or not. Isn't it interesting that they cannot say, see if this is our brother's robe or not. They cannot say, see if this is Joseph's robe or not. They can only say, see if this is your son's robe or not. Well, we can move from the pretense of the brothers to the pain of Jacob in verses 33 to 35. We hear Jacob's submission in verse 33. He carefully examines that robe and he identifies it as his son's. And he convinces himself that a fierce animal must have devoured Joseph and not just devoured him, but but torn him to pieces. Now, this is interesting. If you go back to Genesis 27... You find Jacob deceiving his elderly father with the clothes of his brother and some goat hair. And now years and years later in Genesis 37, you find elderly Jacob being deceived by the brothers of Joseph with their brother's clothes and the blood of a goat. Amazing how things come around, isn't it? And we see Jacob's anguish in this situation, verses 34 and 35. After identifying the robe and assuming that Joseph has been torn to pieces, Jacob 
tears his own clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He mourns for many days. And when his other sons and daughters come to comfort him and console him, he refuses their comfort. He refuses their consolation. He tells them that he will go to his son in Sheol, the underworld, mourning. Jacob fully believes that the rest of his days will be spent lamenting the death of his much-loved son, his favoured son, his favourite son. Finally, we can move from the pain of Jacob to the plight of Joseph. Look at verse 36. We're told that the Midianites sold him in Egypt. And we're also told that he was sold to a man named Potiphar. This man is described as being an officer of Pharaoh. He is a court official. He is also described as being the captain of the guard, a prominent, prestigious position. He's the head of Pharaoh's security team, the Pharaoh's chief bodyguard. That's where Joseph ends up. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the beauty of grace. The beauty of grace. That's what we see in Genesis 37. You see, we know from the preceding chapters that Jacob's family are the Lord's chosen covenant people. They're the ones who are going to function as a channel of blessing to all the nations. But these brothers in Genesis 37 are far from being a virtuous bunch. They appear to be the least likely candidates whom the Lord would ever choose and ever use in his redemptive purposes. But the Lord chooses to bless these men and he chooses these men to be a blessing to the nations because the Lord is a God of grace. He is a God of undeserved, unmerited favour and goodness. And that is very important for us to reflect on today. Again, John T. Rhodes writes, There is something encouraging about the dire state of the brothers, the founding fathers of God's people. These twelve brothers reappear at the end of the Bible's story in Revelation 21. These twelve These murderers, these adulterers, these liars, these are the men who have their names carved on the gates of the new creation. It is extraordinary. God is the God of tremendous grace. That's the truth that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy about, the Titus about. In Titus 3, Paul writes, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is the bad news. And then Paul presents the good news, where he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, that is the testimony of every single Christian without exception. Every Christian can admit that they were helpless and rebellious, that they were profoundly broken, they were profoundly damaged, They had no hope of any self-repair. But every Christian can also acknowledge that they have been rescued, they have been redeemed by a gracious God, a Jesus who loves to save lost causes. That's what we are. No offence, I hope this doesn't do your self-esteem too much damage, but, but a Christian is just a lost cause. 
who's been found by Jesus, saved by Jesus. Every Christian has the testimony that they are the recipient simply of divine favour, unmerited, undeserved divine favour, grace. And so as we close, I want to ask the question, have, have you seen the beauty of grace? Have you seen the beauty of grace? I love the story of John Newton. John Newton was a brutal, hardened slave ship captain who was wonderfully converted. A man who could write the words of the hymn Amazing Grace that we'll sing in a few moments. And shortly before he died, John Newton remarked to a friend, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things. I remember that I am a great sinner. And I remember that Christ is a great saviour. Perhaps you're here today, friend, and you've been a professing Christian for many, many years. But are you still able to say, I remember that I am a great sinner. And I remember that Christ is a great saviour. If you've been professing faith for 60 years, are you still able to say, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Or perhaps you're here today and you would never have called yourself a Christian until now. And I ask you today, friend, will today be the day when you finally say, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Or to, to make it even more personal, are you able to say, I am a great sinner, but Christ is my great saviour. Have you seen, friends, the beauty of grace? The beauty of God's unmerited, undeserved favour and goodness in Christ. Have you seen the beauty of grace? Let's pray.